0: It's the 31st of August, 2018. This is The Room Now We Can Review. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week we're gonna talk about unmet needs in Stills disease, what to do with your biologic when a hurricane hits, and paternal exposure to DMARDs and biologics. Always a big issue, never an answer. I got it for you right here. Let's start off with a study about osteoarthritis, a cohort of almost 3,000 patients looked at what drives utilization, what makes those patients seek healthcare delivery, turns out obviously pain. More than half the patients are uh, seeking uh, care for their osteoarthritis because of pain. Really right on the coattails and almost as important are issues of insomnia and depression. Uh, Again, numbers around 50% for all of these. Uh, And if you think about it, pain, insomnia, depression, How good are we at managing those things? Pains become more problematic with the restrictions on narcotics. Insomnia, most rheumatologists do not deal with, don't even ask about. And depression, ditto, same thing. These are drivers to healthcare. We need to pay attention to it. An interesting study comes from the British Society of Rheumatology, the BSRBR, who has a biologics registry, as you know and had come up with a lot of good data. They have a study, a sort of smaller study compared to their RA studies, but nonetheless a study of 709 psoriatic arthritis patients and looked specifically at the risk of malignancy and the risk of of mortality. Uh, And what they did find was that overall in their cohort there was not an increase in malignancy rates compared to the general population. The SIR, the standardized incidence ratio, was roughly one. But there was a two-fold increase or the SIR of two for non-melanominous skin cancer. And at the same time, they did look at um, the the SMR, the standardized mortality rates, and they did show a 56% 56 increase in the SMR for their psoriatic patients. And most of that death rate was related to coronary artery disease. This is important because we believe that inflammation drives the risk of cancer, drives the risk of inflammation and coronary disease, if not the risk of infection. The question is, maybe there's not enough inflammation in PSA compared to RA and other conditions. Interesting finding may be useful in guiding patients. An interesting study looks at the use of contraception by patients with rheumatic disease. 2,500 patients were looked at. Only a third were taking contraception. Only 8% were using highly effective methods of contraception. By that, we mean IUD, implant, or sterilization. And that in spite of these low numbers, uh, almost half, actually more than half, 70% of patients were taking at some point a fetotoxic medication, medications that theoretically you shouldn't be using if you're childbearing potential or about to have a child. So there seems to be a low rate of contraceptive use and that seems to be a big unmet need in women who become pregnant with rheumatic disease. The FDA has actually released some data about what to do during a hurricane and it specifically looks at what to do with insulin. And they'd say that um, the manufacturers will step up and uh, make the insulin available to those people whose insulin has been destroyed or damaged during a hurricane, or uh, in whom the temperatures led to uh, a lack of supply. Um, So there's measures in place for that by the companies. Hopefully that's true in rheumatology. But more important was the data that says how the drugs should be stored and that insulin should be stored at roughly 36 to 46 degrees Fahrenheit, your temperature um, um, uh, in in the refrigerator. And again, remember, don't use the CRISPR. The CRISPR tends to be cooler and could lead to extremes as far as temperatures there. But like data we published before, if it is unrefrigerated, taken out of the refrigerator, these drugs, biologics and insulin, can be kept at 59 to 86 degrees Fahrenheit for up to a month uh, so again, this is good news for patients who travel and patients who are going through a disaster like this. I tell my patients to avoid the extremes, to avoid the sunlight, et cetera. Worst thing to do would be to put your biologic on the dashboard of your car and go shopping, in, especially if you live in Texas or Florida or Arizona. So again, I think this is instructive data that you can find from the FDA website. We have the link for you on uh, room now. Uh, the BSR-BR looked at cancer risk uh, and showed, um, Um, I think I already talked about that, Uh, I guess I did, Um, yeah I did, so I'm not going to talk about that again, put it in there twice, maybe I thought it was doubly important. Um, We did a survey, uh, one of our live oat surveys on Room Now. we did it in the month of July and it was about Still's disease and your perceptions as rheumatologists about the pathogenesis of Still's disease and maybe how it should be treated. Some really interesting data came out about that. We reported that in yesterday's news. Roughly 70% of rheumatologists believe that Still's disease, whether it's systemic JIA or adult onset Still's disease, is driven by IL-1. And that's sort of reflected in what is your preferred biologic. When choosing a biologic, 70% said they would choose an IL-1 inhibitor, in this case anakinra is what we used in the survey. Um, Second was, not surprisingly, tocilizumab. Uh, Again, 25 to 30% believe that IL-6 may be driving it, but a lesser number, about 15% are using tocilizumab as their first choice of biologic. Interestingly, when we asked the question, what do you do after steroids, do you prefer to use uh, DMARD or you go to a biologic? It's roughly split, about 48% for both, suggesting it's not clear what the next um, best therapy is after a high dose of corticosteroids. And to me, the surprising data was, who referred you your last patient? Uh, And in there, it was 60% of the referrals were coming from non-rheumatologists, unexpected sources, primary care doctors, hospitalists, and infectious disease doctors leading the way. Only 10% came from other rheumatologists or pediatric rheumatologists, uh, and 10% were being self-referred by the patients themselves. Maybe more important was about 15 to 20% of you who said, I don't have any Stills disease patients suggesting, again, there's an education gap here about treatment, Um, since this is a rare disorder and most people don't see it enough to be comfortable in managing it. We should look for that in the future. So what happens when you are starting out your gout therapy, you take it, you get better, do you stay on it? Well, we've had a number of reports in the last few weeks on non-adherence and non-persistence being painfully low in lupus and rheumatoid arthritis will now add gout to the list. Adherence to gout therapies is painfully low. Uh, a, a UK large database, clinical practice database uh, study of almost 48,000 individuals with uh, gout starting on allopurinol showed that non-persistence, non-adherence, roughly half or less. Um, and this is sort of uh, I'm sh- shocking. I'm, I'm not surprised that um, the non-persistence. You know, they, many patients will start on allopurinol and then stop, often at their own choice. Um, uh, but non-adherence to therapy is equally bad, uh, suggesting again that the most common disorder that we treat, gout, tends to be something for which there are um, problems in its management. Um, the safety of parenteral drugs in, um, in, in, in fetal outcomes and looking at fertility. Uh, an interesting study actually was a meta-analysis of, I believe the number was 48 papers originally 223 papers down to 48 papers, looking at 611 males who were exposed to DMARDs and or biologics, encompassed almost 6,000 pregnancies. And the data was somewhat what you might suggest as far as cyclophosphamide and sulfazalazine, in that they do impair spermatogenesis and probably should be avoided. But when it comes to their effect on fertility, these drugs have no effect on fertility and no effect on the outcome of the infant. That included azathioprine, cyclosporin, hydroxychloroquine, leflunamide, methotrexate, uh, and mycophenolate, uh, the latter three being all class X or class D, uh, actually class X uh, teratogens. And But in males, it doesn't seem to affect the outcomes. Similarly, biologics that had adequate data that showed also safe to use in the fathers was TNF inhibitors, abatacept, and rituximab. Insufficient data for which there could be no um, uh, assumptions made included IVIG, tacrolimus, golimumab, anakinra, and tocilizumab. We need more data there. Uh, um, Nicola Dalbeth and colleagues looked at four very large databases to look at the effects of hyperuricemia, showing a lot of the numbers that you've seen in the past, but maybe showing you some things you didn't know. So a serum uric acid of six um, had a roughly 1.1% risk of causing gout. Um, but if that serum uric acid rose to greater than 10, the risk rose up to 49% of those people developing gout or a hazard ratio rising up to 64 fold increased risk of gout. Bottom line though is that sh- extreme level of uric acid is not always associated with the onset of gout. Hence there must be other factors in play in such patients. That's it for this week's report, coming to you from Grenada, where the weather is hot and the mosquitoes are out. We'll talk to you next week.